Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks this day for your word, for the way that your scripture speaks to us even now. Almighty God, I pray that you will have a message for each of us to hear and to listen and to live. In your son's name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, as most of you are well aware, we built a new playground right outside my window here at the church. This new playground is truly beautiful, and it will last for many years to come. Now, during this past pandemic year, the playground and our campus have seen a great deal of activity from the children in the local community. It really is wonderful. This is what a church should be. But I'll confess that as I'm working in my office, I'm often distracted by the loud noises of the children running about. It's a great noise, a wonderful noise for sure. And now that the weather has started to warm up, although it seems like we're going a little backwards, but now the weather's warmed up, I've, I've often had my window open and I find myself listening to the children as they organize themselves around their play, their playground interactions. What fascinates me is the way that various roles develop and the rules and structures that happen in the playground. I know many of you are teachers and certainly parents and coaches. So you see this dynamic as it plays out every day in schoolyards and backyards, on the court or in the field. Children find ways also to be creative and imaginative as they come up with new games and activities. But children can also be very quickly distracted by the temptation to be destructive even and by the impulse to treat one another badly, even cruelly, whether physically or emotionally. At a young age, it seems that children learn about self-preservation and self-elevation that manifests in their actions toward others. So you see, there's this wide range. A, a child who in one breath wants to do something loving and caring for someone might just as quickly want to protect their prized possession. I saw this recently with one of our PCWS youngsters. Early in the pandemic, during the Bernie's Book Bank uh, drive last summer, this young person didn't really understand the concept of leaving their books behind for someone else. You see, they were their books, not someone else's books. Ultimately, they relented, of course, and the box of books was left behind, but there were some tears and even some definite sorrow. Fast forward, though, to a visit just a couple of weeks ago from the same family with actually more books this time. I think I heard the word donate about a dozen times from this same child, this enthusiastic child, excited about releasing this box of books. I heard from the child about how they were bringing these books because there were children who didn't have enough books. And the child explained that they had plenty and that they were donating the books to help other people. In just a short time, six short months, the formation of this child's attitude shifted. I'm not a developmental psychologist, but my simple observation in this moment profoundly impacted my understanding of how we are all shaped by our experiences and by the ways that instruction, repetition, example, and connection, or even our introduction to our inward goodness, can permanently affect our actions and behaviors. 
I know that for this child, there had been repeated efforts by parents and grandparents to talk about helping others and giving to others, donating to those who have need. This was truly a deliberate effort to shape the child during the child's developmental years. And it's working. For sure, this child will have moments of returning to the impulsive nature of self-preservation. But in large part, because of this early formation toward loving others, there will be a remembered knowledge of the joy of loving others. But there's also another key aspect of this child's behavior. Even when they forget to be kind or forget to extend love to others, the quick reminder from the parent or even from the sibling triggers a connection to that learned good behavior. Even when the child strays or drifts, the course correction of the young child can happen more swiftly. The same goes for emotions. I, I've seen so many young children who are overcome with, with tears who then so quickly shift through the tears to a smile. Where I, think that, where I think that there's an irrecoverable disaster evidenced by the tears, I've had parents look at me and say something like, just give it a minute. And sure enough, the rebound and recovery comes fast. There's this elasticity of emotion, nimbleness to return to the, the moral benchmarks of goodness, of, of happiness, creative and imaginative interaction with others. These these are all just a few observations about the nature and character of many young children. There are lots of other observations that can be made, of course. Now, throughout the book of 1 John, the writer, who is thought to be the same writer as the Gospel of John, is probably an elder, an older person, given that we believe that it was likely written sometime at the end of the first century. Now, throughout 1 John, this older, presumably wiser writer refers to the audience as children. It isn't completely clear how much of a relationship the writer has with the audience. We don't know whether they were close to him. And unlike other letters in the New Testament with very intimate relationships that are spelled out, in this letter, we have very little information about the connection between author and audience. But what we do have is this repeated reference to the audience as children, little children. It isn't initially apparent when we read 1 John what is to be inferred by this use of the word children, but it's repeated over and over again. Now, it could be because the writer is older and he's writing to a younger audience who he sees as younger and less mature. Another possibility is that the author is using the softened, endearing language because much of the language in the writing is quite harsh. Is he countering his harsh judgments and instructions about sin in particular by nurturingly referring to them as children? Now, it could be that these are true, but then we get to our reading today that Maddie and Susie read for us. The first few verses of chapter three appear to give us some indication of why John is referring to his audience as children. These verses, and I'll read them to you again in just a moment, they don't seem to fit with the rest of this section of the letter. In chapter two, John is writing all about sin. He's repeatedly writing that when we follow God, we do as Christ has instructed us to do. When we truly believe, we won't sin. In the latter part of our lesson from this morning, the part that Maddie read, and into the rest of chapter three, 
John is again writing about sin and sinfulness, and again, a strong instruction to avoid sin. But for just three verses, the, the verses that Susie read for us, there's this change of tone right in the middle of the writing. This is what John writes. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Right out the gate, John's explanation here of God's love for God's people is that we, and he includes himself in this, we are called children of God. Throughout his letter, he's been using this word, like I said, children. This and this this word children that's used in the Greek in this situation, it's a reference not not of offspring. There's another word in Greek to mean offspring, but rather it's children of God, ones so intimately and forever and irreplaceably held, loved, known, cherished by God. We are called children of God, ones who are influenced by, created in the image of, designed to be like children of God. This wonder of our creation is what John is over and over again building up to in this climactic moment in the letter. He's been using this word over and over and over again, children, children, children. And this concept of God having a parent-child relationship with humanity, it's not altogether new. But the way that John is presenting it here is certainly a bit game-changing. I, I say it isn't new because Throughout the Old Testament, the relationship between God and the people of Israel is often presented as a parent-child relationship. God's parental promises and covenant are with God's chosen people, the people of Israel. We read of the deliverance of God's people from slavery, and God is rescuing God's children. But these Old Testament references, they seem very specific, specific to the people as a whole to Israel. There, there was some confusion then that happened, particularly in the early Christian church in that first century, as to how God was continuing to relate to humanity in the form of Christ, the Son of God. But here, the way that John describes the relationship is that those who follow Jesus, those who seek to follow Christ's ways, are indeed children of God that we are all God's beloved children and that God's love for us changes us, should change us, should shape us, should mold our behaviors and set us apart from a world that consistently acts counter to the way of God. A world that indulges in self-interest and self-preservation rather than the way of love, of kindness, of care for one another, for the least of these, for those in need for the lonely, the sorrowful, the lost. Our status, our identity as children of God means that we can be nimble and malleable like young children who might be tempted at every juncture to go astray, but who can also turn quickly toward love. We are children, you see, not merely because we are spiritually young, 
but we are children because as much as we are driven by impulse, we are also learning quickly the way of our heavenly parent who calls us to turn from the evil tendencies towards God, to turn from sin and reject it. It's why we confess every week. We, we confess not because we wallow in wrongdoing. We confess because we acknowledge that our inclination, our, our drive, our magnetic pole is, is to return to sin. But God's inclination for us, God's design for us is to be without sin, like Christ was without sin. And, and so we, we turn to God in confession because we live in a world where there is sin, a, a world where there is pain a world where there are inequalities and a world in need of Christ's revolutionary love in our lives, in our families, in our churches, in our communities, our cities, our streets, our government, indeed in our world. And it is a world where there is need for God's love to drown out the sins. This is what grace is. Grace is this welcoming nature of God's love for humanity that relentlessly seeks us out, and without which our hearts will always be restless, as Augustine writes when he declares to God, our heart is restless until it rests in you. And so we confess, we, we come before God as God's beloved children. We come seeking rest in God's open embrace. And yet, and still, we live in a world of sin. And we, too, in our lives, step away from the moment of worship and back into the world, and our elastic nature returns us to sin again. Our text this morning is confusing on this. I don't know if you paid much attention to the end of the text, again, the part that Maddie was reading, but scholars have analyzed it for centuries and argued about it. The questions surround the statement that those who have been born of God do not sin. Part of the reasons for questions here is that last week in our text from chapter one of the same book, John writes that if we say we have no sin, then we're liars. These statements feel in contradiction. And so reputable scholars have come with at least seven theories, seven theories over the last several hundred years as to why these contradictions exist. I find it fascinating that there are so many good and thoughtful explanations, and I'm sure there are a lot more that, that aren't good and thoughtful, but these seven that I looked at are pretty cool. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to go into all of them right now, but in studying them and studying this text, I do want to offer one possibility for us to consider. As ones created in the image of God, as children of God, we are designed to be without sin, as God is without sin. And God, and God is at work in us, seeking for us to be transformed, to be made like Christ, to be, as, as I've shared before, what C.S. Lewis calls little Christs. God is at work in us, and we, ever so gradually, are being transformed. Like, like that child who didn't want to give up his precious books and yet six months later was excited to help others. We are being formed and transformed into little Christs, children growing into the image into which we were created. In John's gospel, several weeks ago, we read about living in the darkness of sin and death and following Christ. 
choosing to come into the light rather than remaining in the darkness. Theologian Raymond Brown writes that walking toward the light and away from darkness is an ongoing movement until finally we come to the God who is light and in whom there is no darkness at all. This is our journey, our journey with one another and our journey with God, a journey of walking as children of God and choosing over and over again to allow God to transform us so that we might be seeking the light and rejecting the darkness by seeking to reject sin and to embrace our identity as God's beloved children. John specifically writes in verse 2 that we are God's children now. Our identity as God's children now at this time means that we do not have to resign ourselves to the inevitability of sin, but rather we can strive to be without sin, strive to seek to live in a way that brings about love and to stand up to the injustices all around us. We are God's children now, which means that we are called to look at the world around us through the eyes, with the eyes of God's children, with the eyes and the ears of our sibling Christ, with the eyes of God's loving care. We are called to look at a world where in just this past week, we have experienced so many layers and layers of tragedies, one after another piled onto the tragedies of the prior weeks and months and years. Tragedies, tragedies that somehow seem to draw lines in the sand, to make us choose sides instead of seeking to bring about God's kingdom here and now. When we, when we read or hear the news of a mass shooting, we should be aching for God's kingdom. And our aching should lead us to ask questions that aren't politically motivated, but kingdom motivated. When police are involved in shootings, we should be aching for God's kingdom, God's kingdom here and now. And our aching should lead us to try and understand more about the long and complicated history that has brought us where we are, rather than rushing to draw that line in the sand. We ache for God's kingdom. As God's beloved, we ache for God's kingdom, and our aching should stir us to act. And even when we act, when we live into Christ's resurrection, we know that we will continue to long for a world where mothers don't bury their children and a world where lives are not destroyed in the blink of an eye. And yet the promise of Jesus, the promise throughout the Gospels is that there will be a time, a time, a time we do not know and about which we know very little. When as God's children, we will more fully know God in a place where there is no sin, no separation, no sorrows or pain or loss. There will be a time, a time about which we know very little. But what we do know, what we do know is that we can practice. We can strive for God's heavenly kingdom to be our home even now as we seek the light 
rejecting the darkness, living each day now as though we are already in that place, that place for which we long, that place for which we ache. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. And that, and that is what we are. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.